Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. All right, today we're here with Jeremy Roberts of Conservation Media. So, Jeremy, what exactly is Conservation Media? Uh, Conservation Media is a production company, um, and we specialize in filmmaking foremost, um, but we also do photography and writing, uh, and we do full-on productions, but we also do production support, stock footage, and workshops. But this is all mainly geared for conservation professionals. So we, we teach biologists, you know, the basics of good photography. Uh, we teach, um, you know, filmmaking, or we actually produce things for conservation organizations. Um, it's kind of all of the gamut. Basic conservation media wraps it up. So um, the idea behind it is that you're working on a, like kind of a professional a professional basis rather than a professional media to the public? Well, sometimes we are the voice box for conservation professionals. So we work on crafting a message, what it is they need to say, who they're, who they're trying to reach, who their stakeholders are. Um, basically, we're, I'm trying to, you know, my background is in wildlife biology and I'm kind of returning with my new skill sets for my graduate work back to the biologists I used to work with. And I want to help them go beyond the peer-reviewed publication. So there's a lot of avenues to do that. But so it's just a way for them to take whatever research or whatever conservation they're doing and just expand it. Exactly. Um, and, and it comes it's in many varieties from, you know, if somebody's got like an NSF grant and they're obligated to do broader impacts outreach, that's one thing. We can help with that. Um, if people just want to learn better storytelling, so we do narrative workshops, uh, like for the Society of Conservation Biology or the Wildlife Society, uh, basically how stories are structured. And if you want to reach people, you have to. You can't do it in an um, uh, like an expository mode where you lay out data and you say these are my methods, these are my conclusions. Here's what I did. Um, you have to adopt a narrative. Um, structure you know and if you look at like functional uh, MRIs of people who are receiving the same information either through narrative or through just um, um, I drew a blank here or through um, exposition people people's brains synchronize when you're using narrative because everybody has a place in their mind for a dark and stormy night but but if I'm talking about you know you don't know what metapopulations are you're scrambling to stick it somewhere. Right. You know, so that's why. I, anyway, there are narrative structures, and there's certain conventions, and I try to help scientists so feel can, a little more savvy using those. So you can almost act as the bridge, communication-wise, and the professional. And yeah, I can either be the either be, Yeah, I can either be the bridge, you know, and serve as a function. You know, with, let's produce photographs and document your field research, or do whatever you do, or or write about your issue. Or I can trade the skill sets off. So, you know, it's either fishing or teaching to fish, basically. But I try to get biologists into the mainstream world where they can either talk to, successfully talk to the media, to the general public, to stakeholders like policymakers or fundraising or, you know, potential donors or NSF grants or whatever. So. All right. So you're working with all these different people. And so, how did you come into, you know, coming out of wildlife? How did you come into, you know, being a filmmaker, a writer, a photographer with this idea of conservation media, how does that come about? Uh, well, there's like the 
there's the ultimate and the proximal, right? So there's like, I, I can go back, you know, 10 years, um, or I can go back even more. Um, I, th I think initially I, I specialized in, in birds. I was really interested in uh, avian behavioral ecology. Uh, and I studied with Eric Green at the University of Montana. Um, and I, I learned some really cool things. I mean, not, not only what, you know, my education taught me, but, you know, the things we explored outside. Um, but, you know, birds migrate. And so I found myself routinely struggling for employment um, in, in the winter or, I'd, you know, sorry, I'd try to do... Uh, carnivore work, so I would basically oscillate between carnivore work and avian work. We would summer, winter, summer, winter, back and forth. No, carn carnivores. No. So I was, you know, I was working the tilt a wheel, and um, you know, you know, just strung out on meth, and um, no, no. Um, so yeah, so I did carnivore work, but you know, either radio collaring or track surveys or whatever, whatever I could pick up. And then bird season would come in, I'd be back on it somewhere. Um, and, uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a tenuous existence. Every, like, literally three-month gig to three-month gig with three months of searching in between, and I had some student loans to pay off. And, um, and I just wrapped up being a, uh, like a crew leader in New Mexico and was trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do next. Um, my partner Leanne and I went to Portland and thought we were going to do acupuncture school there. She was going to do acupuncture school, and um, we kind of drifted. And then I picked up a Wolverine radio collaring gig, a trapping radio collaring gig back here in Montana. So we came back to Montana, and I worked that that uh, gig, and that was that was just extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> but what was the Wolverine Five different mountain ranges in southwestern Montana. So. Uh, nothing in the gravelies, but there was the Pioneers, the Flints, uh, the Pintlers, um, Tendoy in there, yeah. Um, Anaconda Pintler, let's see, the Flints, a racetrack. Be um, I guess it's the Beaverheads that are over by, yeah, yeah Tom Miner. And, um, yeah, so we had traps all over the place. You know, we caught tons of Wolverines, you know, it was, it was amazing. Um, but in that time, um, my, I guess my wife at the time, um, found a little posting in the newspaper in the classifieds looking for a naturalist. And I thought, oh, this is interesting because I, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm interested in birds, um, but I'm having fun doing the carnivore stuff. But in my free time, I'm learning butterflies, I'm learning dragonflies, you know, I know my medicinal edible plants, and so I had this interest. So I called, and it turned out that, you know, that just changed my life. Um, I ended up working for this ecotourism launch for Roger Lang in southwestern Montana, on a 25,000 acre ranch, uh, guiding in Yellowstone. I did that for three, three years straight, just doing the guiding. Um, and it was so much fun because I got to tell stories. I got to share all this stuff that I knew well beyond just, you know, measuring, you know, bird parts or, um, you know, or just checking traps and running snowmobiles all over. This was actually getting into the sculpting of storytelling and why things are connected and why people ought to care, you know, or, why this moth that just went by is actually influencing grizzly bear distribution at certain times of the year. Like, these sorts of stories are... Yeah, they're hidden all over the landscape. Yeah, great stories. Or just, you know, like, you know, uh, 
like a shooting star is, you know, Dodecathian Puchellum is like the 12 beautiful gods, you know. It's like, there's just like little stories inside all the, either the nomenclature or the, the ecosystem relationships. And so I got into storytelling. Um, and I guess actually before I left the, um, let me know if I'm going on a tangent no, here. No, 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 no. So I left, I left the, um, before I left the Wolverine Trapping gig at the end of the season, um, there was a guy on my Wolverine Trapping crew that, um, or he was a backtracker, but he he was interested in filmmaking. And I knew about this graduate program in science and natural history filmmaking at Montana State University. And I kept trying to sell him on it. So we'd get back to the bunkhouse at night, you know, after a long, hard day of 35 below zero and working hard. Um, you know, and I'd fire up the computer and I'd show them this. I was like, oh, look at this. So here's, here's part of their curriculum. Check this out. I kept selling them, oh, you're perfect for this. Um, you know, and eventually he left and I was still talking about it. And I kept talking about it. Until, and pretty soon I realized, ah, I think I need to do this. So you were convincing him, but you actually... I was, just, sell, I was just selling myself on it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and I had all these unfunded graduate offers for people I really wanted to work under. Um, you know, like Paul Beyer or... Um, uh, Russ Balda, who does a lot of um, hippocampus and spatial memory stuff in uh, Corvids. And um, you know, I had offers to join these labs, but there was no funding. And so I was kind of waiting for my graduate, next graduate step. And then this thing came up. And um, so while I was doing this naturalist guide thing, um, I applied and got in. And um, yeah, I mean, the rest is history. So I spent four years doing graduate I mean it was a serious academic program so it wasn't like a trade school it was you, you had to pick up all that filmmaking all, all those technical skills at the same time right it's, it's an academic and trade school I mean so you're learning you're learning full production top to bottom from lights and you know camera and directing and producing and budgeting and logistics and all this stuff for straight natural history docs um, but you know you're doing a, a thesis film which takes years and you're doing um know uh, uh, comprehensive exams and a written thesis and it's I mean it's a it's an ass buster yeah, it's, a, it's really it's hard it's very hard and there were other alternatives I could have gone and done a year at trade school at in Otago New Zealand or there's another one in BBC uh, in Bristol now through the BBC uh, but anyway so I did that and then um, basically I took all this storytelling skill set that I, I developed and these production skills and these connections I had made, um, you know, and, and the 10,000 pages of academic stuff that was in my head, and I bring, I'm bringing it back to biologists now. Rather than going and working for Nat Geo and shooting crap and selling Coca-Cola and underwear and cars, which is what they're driven to do, right. um, I try to take these things and help all the scientists' friends I ever knew tell better stories because we're you know we're our, our modes of communication are terrible um our our um, conventions are awful um and so and also a lot of wildlife biologists or conservation professionals are generally not um socially adept people they tend to be kind of reclusive they got into it because they like the open space to quiet the animals they related to animals better you know and then so you take these people who are already off on left foot you know and then they have to talk to people, and you know, so they just start. Yeah, and they they just basically they click through slides, and they think they you know, and and so yeah. Anyway, that's kind of been my mission so far is has been to it's is to come back and, and be an ambassador for 
you know, quote unquote, my people. So that's what I do. So, you know, you get into this, this whole production, filmmaking, narrative. But how did you get in, you know, how did you get into wildlife? I mean, what was your gateway in between a wildlife biology and the guy who did, you know, like the Wolverine study and the other mm-hmm. studies? What, what kind of was keyed in there and where did you grow up and how did that happen? Yeah, there's actually a good story, and I was just reminiscing about this uh, with my daughter uh, recently. So, I mean, I kind of grew up somewhat outdoors in southern Oregon, and my dad was a, a land surveyor, and so he ended up taking us out to, you know, these remote ranches and, you know, these timber sales or whatever, and, and uh, you know, we camped a lot and fished. Um, but, you know, I I kind of spun out into my teen years and just was, I was into skateboarding and, you know, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had a serious detour, uh, from the original trajectory and, um, I started coming back to it. Um, I actually went, tried to go to a cooking school in Boulder, Colorado, realized this was not for me. This is when I was 21 and I decided I needed to just focus on me and be a hedonist, which is a great plan. And, um, for at least, the next couple for at least yeah, oh, it was just a, just a short-lived deal. But what ended up happening is, um, so I was a snowboarder, um, and so I I decided to move up to Vail and Breckenridge and Aspen and live up there and try to be a snowboard snowboard bum. And then so I lived there and I, um, you know, I took the summers off and toured around. And I think of all the the warblers I missed. You know, like I drove for three months up to Nova Scotia and back and just all over. I didn't even know what a warbler was, you know, at the time. It's like I knew there were robins and crows and, you know, everything else was a hawk, I think, you know. And so I didn't really understand what what I was missing. Um, but so I uh, ended up um, after a season at Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe in the summer um, living in a tent. So I'd moved into a tent into the woods. And I was there for like three or four months. And uh, that's just what I wanted to do. Uh, and this might go back to this thing I was, um, I talked to you about earlier about this hyperacusis. Like I have this real sensitivity to certain sounds. And I don't know if I trained my ears to do that through point counts or if it was something beforehand. But when I lived in this tent, um, all I was doing was working at a rafting company, biking up and down, you know, the, the forest service roads. Um, and, um, you know, it was like this big nine-foot-by-nine-foot nine Coleman tent, and I dripped camouflage all over it, and was living in there and playing music, reading books. Um, but there was this bird that just drove me insane because I kept hearing it every morning and every evening, every morning and every evening. And it was something that I almost couldn't spatially position because as I came to find out it was you know it had this it was an exemplary bird for having you know a syrinx and singing two independent songs at once so it had this real ethereal reverberating flute-like melody to it um and i just so i became almost obsessed about this this freaking bird that was haunting me uh and so I would, you know, I would actually go out, of, you know, and just walk through the woods. And this is a beautiful forest. It's all big ponderosa pines with kinnikinnick understory and big glacial boulders. And just going everywhere looking for this damn bird, you know. And it took me forever to find it. Because I was thinking, you know, if the song was this magical, it had to be colorful. Right. All right. So I, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess, I guess maybe that's something people just assume. But, um, so I must have missed this bird a thousand times, um. 
and I finally, finally pegged it. Um, you know, it was a Swainson's thrush, is what it was. And so, uh, I know it was very, a very, it was an epiphany of a moment for me um, about my, you know, my. It was the right place. It was the right landscape. It was the right pursuit. It was meditative. It was, it was an external existence. You know, it was it was like a cracking out of my hedonistic. You know, it was like I was kind of there in the moment without. You know, it was almost like a way for me to lose self consciousness. You know, get sucked into it. There wasn't anything to gain. It was a simple listening. There's no ego. There's no. There's no. Nothing. There's nothing. You know. It's just following a sound in the woods. You know, and keep doing it. You know. Um, it was a great game, but it really. I think it cracked something in me, and I decided I needed to go back to school. This, you know, rock and roll lifestyle of living was not very fulfilling for me. Um, around this time, I also got into ultralight, ultralight long distance hiking. So I was doing these long through hikes. You know, I, and, and I, I read a book by this guy, Ray Jardine, and I realized, oh, my God, I've been doing this all wrong, you know? Like, I've been having the big boots and the 60-pound pack, and, you know, I take the espresso, the espresso maker and everything I can, and I can't wait to get my pack off my back when I get to camp six miles later. You know, I realized, oh, if I just take a tarp and some tennis shoes, and if I just, if I make the bold leap, I can go 25 miles in a day, and I have plenty of time to jump in the lakes and swim and have fun and sleep in and um in the summertime at least and so um i did this long trek from lake tahoe to tuolumne meadows in yosemite so like 200 miles of trail and it was kind of the pacific crest trail but it was called the tell yosemite trail and then it it parallels but it keeps dropping down whereas the pacific crest stays on the ridge lines which i didn't know so i basically got my ass kicked a lot um you know but it was a real coming of age moment I think for me I mean there were big floods the year before uh, this was in 90 I can't remember 97 maybe huge floods so I lost the trail I got lost a lot in the middle of nowhere you know with 35 pounds of food for 10 days or 35 pounds total on my back for 10 days and so I was operating on bare minimum you know not much margin for error and so I had some real great moments but um, you know as I I was never afraid of bears Black bears were just sort of a thing, but park bears were a little different, right? Because so, they had been habituated, and I'd seen that they they peel doors back, you know, and they know that campsites mean food. They know that people mean food, and so I had done this uh, part of this Ray Jardine philosophy was to do the stealth camping, where you just you just crash wherever you can, but never in an established campground, and you never sleep where you cook. All right, and so and it worked, you know. And so I was going along, and I would, you know, I cook dinner, but then when I was done, I'd hike for another half hour, and it put me a mile down the road or down the trail or whatever. Um, and I'd wake up in the bushes, literally, you know, with no tent, and then I would get on the trail for you know an hour or whatever, get two miles, three miles down the trail, cook breakfast. So I never had food with me. I never had the scent, or I mean, the scent of cooked food with me, and I slept in unpredictable places. Life was good. Um, and then I crossed into my biggest stretch without pavement, which was 60 miles. And it was between, uh, I think there was Highway 50 maybe, and Tuolumne Meadows. It was a big 60-mile stretch. So it was a big commitment, you know, to take those first steps. It's like, okay, it's 60 miles of trail between right. here. So in, oh, yeah. I mean, I can turn around, but, you know, at the midway point, you know, you're 30, you're 30 miles either way. You know, you're more than a day. It's a three-day commitment. Yeah. 
And if you're, yeah, you've got a broken ankle, you know, it's going to be four or five days or whatever to get out. Um, so it was a big step to get in there. Plus, I was going into the park, right? So my my ursine nervosa was on high alert. Like, I was bare paranoid. And um, so I there was also this place I really wanted to stay called uh, the Benson Riviera. So it was a little glacial tiny little glacial hanging valley that t-boned into a larger one below it um, and there and the wind would cause you know would channel the winds uh, and then the, the waves would erode the granite and make it was a white sand beach so it's about 60 or 30 miles either way from pavement you get to get to it ben, uh, well benson lake is what it is but the benson riviera so it's this big white beach sand sand beach in the middle of uh, yellow in a little, well, kind of at the end of, end of a lake, and so you look across the lake, and on the other side, it drops off. And then there's steep cliffs on e- either side, and then thick forest behind. So, but anyway, so I, uh, you know, I was kind of nervous about bears, but I really wanted to stay there. Um, my timing was kind of off. It looked like I might have to sleep where I cooked. You know, I was going to get there a little early. Um, and then, you know, beforehand, I ran into a bear on the trail, and so I was, you know, on high alert, very nervous. And of course, I had this mythical park bear in my mind. Um, but anyway, so I went um, to this, this thing. I found this beach, and I said, oh, i, I got to stay here. This is amazing. You know, I want to see the stars from this beach, and I'll sleep on this sand. And So I, I broke my rule, and I, I, cooked in a, I cooked where I slept, but I also slept in a known sleeping area, right? So I double-broken my rule in the face of what I thought were probably the worst potential black bears to ever run into. Um, but so I, I bedded down there just in my sleeping bag on the the beach and uh, you know the stars came out and the waves were lapping and it was just it was a magical thing the milky way was like i've never seen it before and um you know and so i basically had the water at my feet with a cliff on the far end of it i had two steep rock walls on each side of me um and thick timber behind me which i had just come through so there's really no escape except to go back through the timber back to the main trail um but anyway, so I, uh, I slept there, and I heard this large stick snap, you know, and you can tell sort of the diameter of a stick when it snaps in the dark. You know, like, oh, that was, that was, a, that was more of a branch than a twig. I always about 50%. Exactly. <laughs> so it was like a 10-inch diameter log that snapped. But I heard, I heard a stick snap, and I thought, oh, crap, there's something in the woods behind me. Uh, I got myself in a bad situation. Okay, thinking, 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 mind starting to spin forgetting about the stars, forgetting about where I was, but, um, you know, eventually I, you know, nothing came of it. So 20 minutes passed or whatever. And I, um, kind of got back into the lull, the waves and, uh, started thinking about the Milky Way again and watching and, um, bam, another stick snaps, but somewhere kind of different from where it was before. I thought, oh, whatever the thing was, it's moving. All right. So, to me, suddenly, okay, that, that was proof that there was one one object, and it was animate, you know, and it was heavy, and it was fussing around in the dark, and, um, but anyway, so I, I eventually, you know, being on high alert, you know, sat there and listened and listened and listened, and, you know, and nothing ever came of it, so I fell asleep, thinking I'm probably going to be attacked by a bear, but, you know, whatever, just go to sleep, and, um, Anyway, so I, uh, I ended up sitting straight up because something grabbed my foot. Something had completely grabbed a hold of my toes, like through my sleeping bag and had my feet, or one foot. And um, 
and you know, and I sat up and screamed like an old schoolgirl, of course. And I'm, you know, 30 miles from anywhere, the direction, and you know, nobody really knows where I'm at. And this is it. This is it. I'm going to get drugged into the lake and sink, and there's nothing left of me. You know, it's all over. You know, it's been fun. I really wanted to go to school in, Mon- you know, Montana, but. Um, but in the stars, I could see this silhouette where there were no stars, right? So, like, a big absence of stars in this pattern. And the first thing I thought, it looked like a moose with antlers over the top of me. And, you know, and this has all happened. you got to think, you know, in, the mag- in a matter of, like, three seconds, probably, or four seconds. But my mind was fast enough to know that there were no moose. Like, this is, that's great. That's wrong. <laughs> uh and, and there was this um, this wind and this this sort of crazy weird motion causing this wind on my face, like serious wind on my face, where there was none before. And um, eventually, this thing lets go of me, and I realize it's an owl. It's a great horned owl. I must have been like wiggling my toes or whatever in the sleeping bag, and it came cooking along the beach and it pounced on my feet and was trying to lift off with me. I totally thought I had a mouse, and it was trying to lift and lift and lift, and that's what that wind, I mean, it was significant lift. Wings were in my face, but I couldn't really hear, you know, there was no whooshing of the wings, they were relatively quiet, and, uh, but anyway, yeah, so, you know, then obviously I'll let go and then lift it off, and I could see it against the starry background, it took off, and, um, you know, and I kind of had to laugh, you know, like, Jesus, this whole this whole thing of being a man or a mouse, you know, like, here I was physically, mentally, but also, like, literally mistaken for a mouse. But, um, you know, I ended up going to sleep, and it was fine, you know, and life was good. But uh, I think that kind of was one of the things that summer, my experiences with birds, it sort of pushed me to want to study birds in particular. You know, and then I looked into different schools, and... Ended up here in Missoula, and the rest is sort of history. So. I have kind of similar experience. When I was a kid, we were hiking with Catholics. A friend of mine drove us up to the trailhead and dropped us off to pick you up on Sunday. You know, we were 13, 14. Nice. We hike into this lake, and we spent a day in Catholics. We hiked out, and it all burned out, so it was all bare grass. But I mean, okay. really, really steep. This stuff is slippery. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we had seen bear scat. So when you're a 13 year old man, any pile of bear scat is grizzly bears. Right. And it's proportionally larger. Right. <laughs> and, and so we're walking on this trail. And my buddy Matt, and we're, you know, this is Montana, you know, in the 80s, so we both have 22s. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's going to stop a grizzly, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's walking in front of me. I'm on this high bear alert like you were, you know, oh, this is going to happen. And I hear him go, all I hear is a bird, just a GR sound, and he's going to come off his shoulder and down. And I'm going, bird, 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 Whoa. And my 13 year old mind, 
I believe they're also called, right? Nice. So you end up, you end up after this experience and saying, you want to come to Missoula to study wildlife. Did you have a link to Montana before? Well, I, I actually researched the programs that I wanted to go to, and I looked at the ones that were, you know, most well-known. Um, my academic background wasn't so strong at the time because I had taken a year off out of high school and it turned into like seven or eight years. Um, and so I wasn't going to get into it. Yale, you know, school of forestry, and I wasn't, uh, and so basically it was between, it was between UM in Missoula and, uh, and, uh, University of Alaska in, in Fairbanks, and so I could actually come visit Missoula, whereas I couldn't really get to Fairbanks, so easy to check it out, so I came here, check it out, took a tour, you know, it just seemed like a more expansive version of home, you know, it's not full of choked out with dug furs and fog, but, um, you know, it's kind of like where I grew up, you know. So, so yeah, yeah, good people, good community, and big mountains, and it just seemed right. So, yeah, I, I chose Missoula, you know, and I, and I got in, of course, too. So, which I don't know what that's, that's what I heard. That's what I heard. That's the, that's the only reason I came to Missoula. So then, how do you go from the wildlife to kind of working for Eric? Did you just have like an internship open, or how did you get involved in Eric? And what were your crew studies? Um, so yeah, the thing I did with Eric was really cool. So he he had a graduate student, um, Chris Templeton, who did a lot of uh, acoustic stuff with um, mobbing calls and chickadees, and um, and so Eric was my uh, advisor, and I. I stumbled across a paper by a woman, Millicent Ficken. So she she did some chickadee stuff. She was, in, I mean, this was, you know, it was an old paper, and it was a, more of an anecdotal write-up. But she happened to be recording chickadees or mixed flocks. Um, she was recording, recording for other reasons, constant recording. She happened to catch a handful, a small sample size, of aerial predator alarm calls given by chickadees to different-sized occipiters. Right, and so there was a sharp shin coming in. She happened to get a recording of chickadees freaking out over a sharp shin coming in, and one over a you know a cooper's hawk coming in, and yeah, and some other larger flyby type things, um, yeah, and, and some other non occipiters, I guess. Uh, but she she had this little hypothesis. She said, you know, it seems like you know we, I know this is a crappy sample size, but it seems like there might be some variation in the frequencies based on maybe potentially predator size. And so that had just been demonstrated by uh, Chris Templeton in mobbing calls that there was acoustic variation for the the DDDD part of a chickadee-DD. That mobbing part was acoustically different for different sized predators, whether they were stationary or whether they were mob, you know, they mob stationary predators. 
And, but you could take that those differences and actually do playback trials, and the birds would freeze, you know, accordingly, or, or not freeze, but um, mob longer. So, so it was like they were encoding information that could then be extracted on playback. So, so the call actually, you know, there, it was essentially like vervet monkeys, you know, there's, there's words, you know, for, for lack of a better phrase. The individual making yeah. the call is observing, and then it tells the rest of the individuals how to behave. Sort of, yeah. And, and so if you think of um, aerial maneuverability as a function of wing size, like pig meows can turn on a dime, you know, sharp shin hawks can turn on a little less of a dime, you know, and then you get up to, like, eagles that can't turn for shit, you know, or sorry, um, they can't turn uh, relative to a chickadee, right? So the shorter the wingspan, the higher the threat. Right, and so basically, there's there's an incentive evolutionarily for encoding information about threat level in a predator. So basically, instead of you know saying chickadee dee dee dee, they're saying you know pig me out ow 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 pig me ow pig me ow ow ow, right? Whereas you know if it's you know I don't know you throw a barn owl or something out there, they're gonna kind of go eh chickadee dee, you know. Yeah. So it could even just be some sort of an emotive response that's constraining their vocal cords, you know, or they're like, I'm kind of freaked out, so I'm sounding a little different. I'm a little more, you know, anxiety-ridden. Um, but that information can be relayed. So you can record it, play it back to other animals, and they freak out accordingly based on what you've played back to them. Um, so I thought, well, maybe there's a similar deal with um, aerial predator alarm calls. Right, and so those those aren't big high frequency spishing, you know, mobbing. They're real clean tones, like a little imperceptible onset and offset. And they're they're like you know robins do them, um, you know, squirrels do them. They all have a sort of like they're hard to localize. You hear them, but you can't just like with your eyes closed point to where it was. Whereas with a mobbing call, it's like somebody, you're like, oh, it's to my left, and it's up here at twelve o'clock or whatever. So these aerial predator alarm calls, basically, you don't want to give away your location, but from some selfish gene perspective or some kinship selection perspective, you can, there, there's there's reason for saying something, right. you know. You would think maybe the best thing would be to shut up and let Fred get nailed, right? But, but you know. Pe- Fred's girlfriend. Exactly, <laughs> you know. So there's all sorts of, you know reasons maybe why it shouldn't happen, but there's also reasons why it should happen. But anyway, they do give these aerial predator alarm calls. So what I do is I went out and I captured groups of chickadees, um, flocks of six from different locations, and I put them in this aviary or uh, out at uh, the flight lab, Fort Missoula, and it was all decked out. You know, we had trees in there and all sorts of stuff, and that was a lot of leftovers from the previous research on mobbing calls. But what I did was I strung along fishing line and I had different models that I flew over the aviary at random intervals and I recorded everything that the chickadee said when the flying predator went by and and there were some flaws in mine because I had not it wasn't just wing size I had some different profiles out of circumstance um, but basically there was a, a, a pretty clear pattern you know and it really this should, should be redone and done with robust sample sizes um, but there's a pretty clear pattern that the frequency of the aerial predator alarm call is higher with smaller wing size. Which is a greater threat. Which is a greater threat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that could just be sort of, I mean, that's almost not even, you know. 
It is. But but the point is, so it could be the opposite. You know, it could have been that lower frequency was shorter wingspan. It could have been inverse. But I guess the point is that um, there was a clear pattern of wing size versus the frequency of the single clear alarm call that was given. And I only took the first one because it's hard to say who was saying. And there's chick, uh, six birds in there all saying, you know. Yeah, it's all confounding. So I just took the first first seat on every call. They're called seat calls. I took the first one of every sample. And I randomized the order. And um, But then what I did was I took I took those calls and said, okay, it's pretty clear that this is a you know 10,000 hertz and that's a 9,000 hertz and whatever. Um, and I played them back to the chickadees. And what I measured was the amount of time they stayed frozen. Because that's what they do when they hear a seat call. Everybody freezes. Look around, look around. Don't move, don't move. Right? So uh, so that, so that it, it looks like it transferred. Like, it, the higher frequency, which was associated with a pygmy owl, basically, um, the birds froze for, like, three minutes. Whereas if I got something larger, which I had, which was the size of, the go- of a goshawk, they weren't so scared of it. You know, they would freeze, they'd watch it go over, and then, you know, 60 seconds later, they totally forgot about it. So, yeah, basically, you know, and then I had a control in there, some sort of metalarchy-looking thing that I just threw. But, I mean, it's, it's there, you know, and it's, it's a paper for the publishing. Somebody's just got to do it right, you know. So. That's really interesting. So, so the frequency, the higher frequency, at least in chickadees. It was it just, it was just black-capped chickadees. Just chickadees. From the Northern Rockies, yeah. So the answer is Rebuild black chickpeas, but then expand that to. Uh, red, red breasted. Not, well, yeah, it's something uh, a mixed flock sort of, con, not a con specific, but a con. <laughs> you know, someone from a mixed flock in a winter who has learned the language. Yeah, because the mobbing seems to be transferable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's so many cool things you could do. I mean, there's um, endless, but the question is who the hell wants to fund that? You know, nobody. You know, it's, it's not even utilitarian per se. It's just really, it's a really cool question. Eric, Eric has talked about it and, you know, and he's wanted to do it. And he, um, he and I talked on the phone maybe, you know, she's 12 months ago, you know, about the old data and whatever. But, I mean, it's it's there. I think he just needs to get a full-time grad student with some money on it, which I wasn't. No, I wasn't a grad student of his. I was just screwing around at the flight lab. So, Did you have any involvement in his uh, lively bunting? Nope. None at all. Nope. I mean, I, I, you know, I was... He was presenting data real-time to us as, as it was happening, so we got to see... You know who was mimicking who, and who was embedding, stealing song fragments, and this is the original mashup, yeah, yeah. He, I think he did. But I think it was maybe for subsequent studies. You'd have to ask him. Because I know the initial stuff was all right there on the hill. So yeah. You get done with water. You graduate with your... 
Uh, I did an undergrad here, yeah. And then you go right into the world for intern. Well, no, I did bird oh, sur- I did bird surveys. I worked all over. And, what kind of Jeez, birds, man. <laughs> I, I did a bunch of napweed stuff. Um, there was stuff, tamarisk removal stuff. Um, I worked for Alex Badia for a while and his uh, finches, which was challenging for me. That was a lot more work than I was getting paid for. So, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that stuff was really fun, man. You know, photographing yolk masses and putting the eggs back on the sly, and that was really fun stuff. Um, so I just, yeah, I kind of traveled around, did bird stuff, and then uh, and birded, you know, as I was going along, and so. Like when I was down down in New Mexico, I made forays over to the Sky Islands, you know, over and did my Arizona stuff and so sob trogons and yeah, I did I did all the stuff, yeah. And I actually met Eric over there, you know. We, you know, we goofed around and went, yeah. And he knew about some caves, and then we actually collected moths because he was there for this. You know, Eric is an amazing guy. He's so taxonomically diverse in his interests, but he uh, was working on these these uh, moths. Um, so I went out with him blacklighting in the Chiricahuas to collect moths. Where it's amazing what happens. You put up a sheet in a blacklight, and you're like, whoa. And I've never done it here around Missoula, but I bet. Yeah, I'd love to go up and just, especially some draw with a little bit of moisture, and just stick a sheet up, put a blacklight on it, see what happens. Well, the last episode I talked to Matt Seinsticker, who worked for Denver. He did a lot of Denver's Yeah, okay. What, what is there eating? Yeah. I bet it's probably, I bet it's, you know, I mean, relatively, I mean, this is all just ignorant speculation, but I imagine it's relatively, um, you know, non-diverse, I would say. I mean, if you went to some other, I don't know, I mean, there's just arid, you know, forests, you know. Oh, yeah, who knows? See, this is just endless. Oh, the flams. Not carnival. <laughs> right. And I guess I have, a, I have an image of you as the barker for the fat man. There you go, exactly. <laughs> guess or what? So you do all these jobs. You, you go into the program uh, at Montana State mm-hmm. for filmmaking. It's for science and natural history filmmaking, yeah. It's a good question. I think a lot of the, the ignorant public, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but the, the unknowing public um, glamorizes Nat Geo or whatever. Um, 
having been on the back side of it, like learning what I learned through the program, plus also working a bit for them, um, it's just not where I want to be. You know, looking, you know, people would, yeah, it's just, they are not the scientific bastions they claim to be. And it's it's just, well, yeah, they're a private production company. In fact, even, yeah, the Nagio TV is a private company that leased the golden rectangle to stick on their seal, you know, and then Nagio itself has, you know, first right of refusal or whatever, but, um... Yeah, the, the, there's just such buy-in. People fawn. The general public fawns over them, and then I just see a totally different world. Uh, and it's one that's not—it's um, not satisfying to me. So, you know, maybe it's just I'm just some sort of stickler, you know. For it's, it's the scientist in me, you know. Well, that—that that begs qualification. Um, and so, yeah, I just decided. I think I don't. So I guess to answer your question, I don't think I went into it, maybe even with plan. Um, you know, I mean, I went into, I guess I went into wildlife because I was going to, you know, live outside and study animals and somebody else was going to crunch the data, right? Um, and I was going to be well paid and, you know, and so maybe, yeah, maybe I had these dreams too of, you know, making natural history films that are broadcast length and flying helicopters over these expanses and sitting, you know, next to David, you know, Attenborough and, but, uh, yeah, I think as I came through it, it became clear that I needed to... I needed to stay away from that broadcast production. It's 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 not full of the the people that I necessarily would want to you know work with. Um, you know the best friend until you're not. Um, where you know if you got something that they want, then uh, you're the call all the time. You know, and then as soon as you don't have something they don't want, they forget your name. And uh, it's it's an LA kind of crowd, but it's in DC. You know, and it's uh, and these people are you know production oriented. They're not biologists. They're not naturalists. They don't know. They don't know what a flammulated owl is, let alone you know to think about the moths it's catching. You know, they just they're they're trying to crank out a story that's dramatic, wraps up in fifty six minutes, and sells a hell of a lot of cars. And it's a predetermined story. Predetermined always. Well, yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I guess I didn't know at the start, but it came pretty clear by the end that I needed to, I needed to do my own thing so I put a stake in the ground and I've been building on it ever since so I think I think one way to do it is to give the researchers who are currently doing work instead of being filtered through it well back in the day Discovery Channel they hardly do any decent programming river monsters swamp loggers they're filtered Rather than direct, somehow directly. Yeah, yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, it's oh, it's so ugly. It's so complicated. Um, you know, it's one thing I find that's really funny about humans in general. Are we running short on time? Are we good? Okay. Um, I find this really funny, but seemingly true about well, at least the humans I interact with that. Um, you know, I'm on several boards, you know, for like the Filmmakers for Conservation or the National History Center. Or, um, but, you know, you have a board, um, you sort of have people there for their strengths, and you try to diversify that so they represent different strengths. So you've got somebody with marketing background, somebody with fundraising background, somebody with, you know, accounting and logistical. You know, you've got people that represent all these. And, like, if I'm the accountant, 
I don't have much to say to the marketing person. Or if I'm the marketing person, I don't have much to say to, you know, the, I don't know, some other administrative person per se. Like, I know my niche, um, and I'm willing to contribute to the rest. But when you get all these people around the table, everybody's an artist. Everybody thinks they're an artist. And everybody's got a creative opinion. And so creative people like myself are never left to be fully creative on their own, you know, representing the whole you know, it's like, whereas, you know, the accountant just, just, I don't know, just return a product, do it, use your skill set and do it. So the, the creative process is always ugly, collaborative sort of thing. It's a compromise, but the accounting should never be compromised, you know, or, or yeah, whatever else. But I think it's always funny with the creative, it's always funny the input you get from others who have no expertise whatsoever in what you're doing. Right. But they're the first ones to give you notes and input. Yeah, and if they've got influence, you know, with the group of people, then suddenly your your creativity is being hijacked and you have to... It's a thin line. You have to kind of work it so that you're, you're helping the people tell the story they want to tell, but you're also helping them not be their own worst enemies, you know, because people fall back onto bad communication. Um, at the same time, you know, you want them to be happy. You want them to be successful but you're also like in my case I'm I'm putting credit of my own on there and therefore it, it reflects me you know so I also have to protect myself and um, but it's always way better than just the broadcast machine as a vertical tube you know you're in the middle and everything goes from everything comes from up above or whatever you know you have no say there's no lateral shifting whereas I think at least I try to work out some sort of a more roundtable deal. Right. But, yeah, it's fun, though. So when you do these products, I mean, how, once you have a finish, you know, whether it's a short film or whatever the, the creative piece is, how is that disseminated usually? Is it starting to be a lot more online? You know, people are just their own YouTube channels or Vimeo? or How are they getting yeah, the word out? it's all... I mean... The most powerful thing for communicating is moving images um, with with dialogue. You know, you take you take the best of all the worlds and you put them back together. Um, so it's not just a written piece or it's not just a straight photo essay. Um, but you know, you put those things together and you can speak multiple languages too with film because you can speak. You know, there's there's musical score which is its own sort of language underneath. You know, whether you have a little tense kind of cadence underneath something and they're oh, dissecting it's very emotive some, very emotive well yeah mu- music is the emotive underscore and it's a language all independent of its own then you stack on top of that the dialogue people are talking about this that and the other and then on top of that you have another language you know which is the which is the visual and the editing and so you, if people can c- consume all three of those at once any given moment you take a cross section and they've absorbed all three you move you know two seconds down the line and they've absorbed all of it again and again and again and it goes on so it's a very powerful medium, um, you know, and, and the web is the place you grab a continual um, and exponential increase in viewership. Broadcast, you know, there's all the rights and all, everything is ugly, and so it's, it's on once, bam, it's hidden from everywhere within, you know, maybe they break it into little pieces, so you can watch it for a couple of weeks on the, on the web, but it's gone when it's done. Um, maybe it gets rebroadcast if it was really good, or it was some, you know, my life as a turkey will probably come on every Thanksgiving. Right. But um, 
they don't have the shelf life, even though there's so much money and time put into them, um, and they're not in front of people all the time. And um, so the viewership is instantaneous, and then it's gone. And it's big, but it's gone. Whereas on the web, people can watch constantly or continually or whenever they want, share it, link it. And, you know, like, I have stuff on the web right now. Like, I'm sitting here drinking a cup of tea, and it's churning away, and people are watching stuff. And I have nothing to do with it, you know. So it's got a, it's got a life of its own, and you get enough viewership, and things sort of take off. Um, but the, the viewership is constantly increasing. And until your piece is outdated, you know, like maybe... You know, maybe Wolverines didn't get listed, or maybe, I don't know, you could outdate yourself somehow, but as long as your stuff seems relatively relative, <laughs> that's funny, relative. <laughs> you know, but I mean, or, or, or excuse me, relatively relevant, right. um, then there's no reason that it won't continue to be moved around by other people, you know. Um, yeah, and then, of course, then there's, there's still images that are powerful as well, and those things get eaten up and stolen and shipped around on the web, and... Right. You know, and that's kind of what you want. As long as you've watermarked it or you can track the stats, you know where it's going and you try to save it or, you know, whatever. Um, but if it tells a story and there's a story that sticks with it, um, you know, that's that's great stuff. Right. And, and so when these, so you've got these pieces, you put them out there. It's usually the intent of the researcher, you know, other than dissemination of whatever their findings are or their progress. Is there intention, like, Funding, you know, they've got potential funders. Hey, look, I got this great thing. It's gone this far. I need X number of ducats to continue what I've been doing. Yeah, well, so there's this, this, this. Uh, you know, one of my um, my beloved professors from uh, my graduate work um, presented me with this. I don't even know if it's his, but it's a it's a a concept for filmmaking and probably communication in general, but. You have to ask yourself, who speaks to whom about what? So it's kind of a nice little triangle there, and uh, or three-point line at least. And when you can fill those in, that dictates the the form and the function of your finished piece. So yeah, you know, if if it's a researcher speaks to funders about their project, that's one one version of the same story. You could say. You know, maybe it's a stakeholder speaks to other stakeholders about that project. You know, or you know, I mean, you can just make it a gazillion different ways, right. piece it together, and then so. So it's not always about fundraising. Um, you know, sometimes it's just about accountability. Like you, I, you gave me this grant. I did this research. Here it is in a nutshell, visually, and with a nice little story. Send it back. There, you know. So there's there's those sort of NSF accountables. Right. There's. Um, this is the National Science Foundation grants. Um, Which has made quite a splash when you come back and you want a renewal of funds. That you, yeah, that you yeah. Have, you've given this awesome piece of content. Yeah. Like, yeah, and people are storytellers. I mean, this is what Homo sapiens are. Right. You know, it's not about opposable thumbs. There's amphibians that have opposable thumbs, you know. The panda's even got that funky little <laughs> whatever that uh, bone is. The, the, uh, oh. It's a yeah. Mr. Gould taught me about that. Yeah. Um, I read the same book. Um, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, uh, there, there's no, you know, tool making is not, is not yeah. distinguishing us, you know, obviously. And there's so many things that don't distinguish us uh, from other species, but storytelling is one of them. 
you might argue that you know bees can go out and do a little dance and say, hey, here's a beginning, middle, and an end or whatever. But we are by far and large, uh, by far, uh, the most narrative species out there. And even our own understanding of ourselves yeah, is, is a collection of stories we tell ourselves. Right. We all live by an internal, an internal narrative. Yeah. Which is why we're so easily self-deluded. Yeah. You know, yeah, we can tell totally. ourselves any narrative we want to tell ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that's what I just spent this time doing. It's like, well, you want to know? Well, here's a story. Let me reach into the bag and I'll pull out. There's a story. That explains who I am or how I got here or why I did this or how these people are in my life now or whatever. Um, they're all stories, bags of stories. You know, and you look around here, there's just stories. People are talking with stories. You know, these paintings on the walls are stories. Everywhere you go, there's stories. And that's what marketers know. The people who are making big bucks, they know the power of storytelling. You know, whether it's Coca-Cola or it's BBC or whatever, they know the power of storytelling and how that appeals to us. You know, it's not around a campfire, and we're not learning where food and mates and resources are. We're not hearing stories about allies or whatever that really matter per se, but it's playing on those, um, you know, those... Uh, those same... Yeah, it's those instincts that we have. Like, we want to know who's sleeping with who. We want to know who hates you, who's talking about you, who, you know, we want to know all these things. And that's what these stories are just constantly about. So, you know, and that's why filmmaking is so cool because it fits into this um, predilection we have, this, you know, this narrative world plus vision. And cuts are blinks, you know, and there, there are certain ways, you know, your head pans, your head moves here, you. And, you know, that's why you mix sounds a certain way. It's why you make cuts a certain way. Is you're, because you're you're trying to imitate or recreate human experience. And that's why it's so engaging. You know, if we're looking... I don't know, there's some other mode of seeing the world. Or if it's just reading. Like, reading is really abstract. And that's why people just don't read. You know, I mean, people read, but people don't... I mean, a lot of these college students surrounding me here are reading under duress. You know, right. from these... Looks, looks like a 600-page text over there. But... Um, you know, given, given the chance, people watch videos. Right. You know, people watch short videos. And people watch short videos, you know, at midnight on the web. You know, this is what people do. You know, and it's, it's, a, it's a video on demand. Watch it when you want. Make it short. Make it sweet. Tell me a story. Show me pictures. That's how people want to absorb content. Right. So. And so you can keep that. You can re- so you can really grab on the people's ever-shortening attention span. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, there's there's this whole thing of this narrative transport. You know, it's sort of the moment when you get sucked into a story and you forget where you are. And that's the thing that any filmmaker or writer or whatever is trying to create. They're trying to, you know, they fire up the engines. They're trying to get the, the electric hum going. And then once they get you sucked in, if they can keep it alive, then you're not going to drop out until you're dropped out at the end. Right. Um, but if it's poor writing or it's poor filmmaking, there's going to be a thousand reasons why you're going to become aware of where you are and what your time it is. And, you know, it's bad editing. You know, you're aware that you're, you know, you remember you have socks on all of a sudden and you can hear the noise around you. You're not engaged. And so the narrative transport is what you're trying to build. And that's, isn't that some of the reasons why, like, why reality TV is so popular so well? Because the stories are horrible. Like... I hate to put it this way, but you have this collection of freaks mm-hmm. that just grab You can't believe you're watching the freak show. It's like, you know, we're talking about the carnival and the fat, mm-hmm. and the fat lady. It's the yeah. same instinct. Yeah. You're just enthralled by yeah. how insane these people are or their situations. Yeah. Are. Yeah. And there's something, too, I think, tracking. There, there's something, to, to me, there's, there's a, 
an evolutionary background to tracking the behavior of unpredictable, sketchy people. Right. Like, keep your eye on them. What's he going to do next? Oh, yeah. Oh, what does that mean? What's he doing next? You know, like, it's just keep your eye on it. And I think that's what it appeals to. So, you know, we have Nut this, jobs. So, like, we have this kind of slowest common denominator, entertainment. Now, I'm getting it back to conservation and media is, you know, there's been several attempts at birding programs. And they've had oh, and varying, yeah. varying levels of success. And now it just excludes television. But how do we engage people in the conservation with the story when, you know, they can watch Honey Boo Boo. You know, they can, they can watch that. But how do, we, how do you grab them and say, this is an interesting narrative of conservation. Yeah. There's a reality to it rather than what you're watching. How do you, how do you yeah, grab Yeah, the people? hardest thing in the in, it's a pitch to any commissioner is a TV show about plants. Hands down, that's the worst thing to try to get money for. Hey, I got a great flower. Let me tell you about it for an hour, you know. Right. It's just like, whoa, no, not going to happen. It's got to move on its own, you know. It's got to have a personality. Can we give it a name? You know, there, there's all this desire to go for something like that. The next worst thing is birds. Because they're just, they're, you know, I don't know. They're just, they're... They're obscure. What do you, you know? To get any shots of them, they're yeah. flitting around. Maybe there's some cool behavior, but you know that's going to get you a, a three-minute sequence. It's not going to run you for 56 minutes. Um, you know, they're they're too much like dinosaurs. You know, it's like you need eyelashes and you need whiskers and you need twinkly little noses. And um, you know, you're talking about bird. Did you see uh, the joint effort between the Cornell Laboratory Ontology and Nat Geo doing the Birds of Paradise? Yeah. So that's yeah. So that's the, I mean, that's just brand new thing, right? They're just right. launching a website. Yeah. I don't know how it's going. Well, you know, I watched it, and it was done very, very well. But You're talking the about the bird, show? or the yeah. show. And it was kind of interesting. At the end, the birds weren't the star of the show. It was the, it was the journey of the photographer and the researcher, which mm-hmm. is very, it was interesting. It's compelling. Mm-hmm. But... It wasn't the birds weren't the star of the show. It's like you can almost tell like, that yeah, you they can't. had to change that to make it not the yeah, birds. Yeah, you can't. I mean, you just can't. I mean, first of all, primates want to watch primates. You know, that's yeah. the thing we want to do. Um, and there are, you know, I don't know. A lot of people argue for all the different potential models for narrative structures for plots that exist. Some people say there's hundreds. Some people say there's three. Some people say there's 20. Some people say whatever. But if you look at all of them, um, the ones that are engaging, the stories that are tried and true, that we live on, that are bestsellers, you know, and um, they're all revolve. They all fit into a handful of plots, and they're all around people. And that's why. That's why Disney tried so hard to anthropomorphize everything with Bambi and Perry. They need. They they took the orphan motif that was good in in, in uh, literature, you know, at the turn of the century before the camera was uh, invented. Once that got rolling. You know, they realize, okay, the orphan motif kind of works, but um, chase scenes and violence scenes are pretty cool. Hunting shows, let's pit two animals against each other. And it just went downhill from there. And in the middle there, we passed through the Disney era, the true life adventures, where shit was just made up. And they said it, right. they said it was science when it was outright lies. Who was the guy? Uh, Marty Stauffer? You know? Marty Stauffer, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, well, you know, they find out he's baiting everything. And or he flies the animals in and shows yeah. them to each other and... Yeah, I mean, but but you know, he was. I mean, he got outed, but he was no different than anybody at the time. Right. So he just he was made an example of, and 
I kind of feel for him because he was a product of his time and everybody else was doing it. Right. But so many other people ducked the radar, you know. They got up, they weren't detected. But, you know, things haven't... I don't know. It's, it's been... It's been an ever-assembling machine, but it's always appealing to the most basest instincts we have. You know, and it's put in some chases. Give me a quest. Give me a treasure. Give me, give me a hero. Give me, you know, tell me who's sleeping with who. You know, I want, I want a heroine. You know, I want triangles. Is there a prince plus the the poor forest boy and the princess? You know, like how does that triangle work? And and uh, you know, who's who's stealing from who or who's who's. Um, conspiring with who and so this is why birds of paradise themselves are a tough sell but a character you want to follow him and see what his quest is all about but see I would, I would always say that I know it's nearly impossible from a filmmaking standpoint but there is all those stories with man, with birds you know if, if, they are if, there if someone just took the time to and then you talk yeah. about time and money but there, time there is money. there is all those stories that, yeah you know I mean for for those who don't know the inside of broadcast filmmaking I mean it's a, it's a it's a huge business right so tons of advertising dollars come in tons of advertising dollars go out and maybe some of that footage gets repurposed later um, but really it's a it's a build it and flush it build it and flush it and just keep it going pump it pump it and and, and so these things are cranked out but they're they're expensive I mean our broadcast if, if a commissioner buys it in bulk, you, you know they might give you 125000 for an hour, for every hour, and you get commissioned a bunch of shows, and so you do them all, bam, 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 bam. Everybody's taking a big cut, making money, buying good cameras, traveling around. But um, that stuff, the overhead is huge. And so the, you burn through that money like you wouldn't believe. Everybody's, you know, staying in hotels and eating, you know, whereas, you know, people like myself are sleeping in our cars and right. camping out and... But, but, you know... Uh, What's the budget? Yeah, I mean, budget? like a... Well, yeah, like a... I mean, like, I'm operating on, you know, thousands of dollars, whereas an hour broadcast piece could be operating on $350,000. Right. And nobody in there really cares. You know, like... It's just another game. It's just showing up to the job, writing it out, and they're, they're half distracted because they're thinking about the next gig and trying to move up the next, you know, get the promotion or move to the next thing and... You know, and it's a funny thing when you work with folks in these machines in Discovery and Nat Geo or whatever. You talk with somebody, you interact with them, you give them some footage, you, I don't know, you vet some ideas, whatever. Um, eight months later, they're not there. They've taken another position, they've moved on, somebody else is there, and it's constantly turning over because they're just there for a couple shows. They're cranking out two, three, four, I got six shows going, bam, that's enough to move on. Crank it out, crank it out, crank it out, and you know you're, they're calling frantically to make sure the cameraman's showing up and he's getting the footage and that's working in the flight. Where you know where's the luggage? Is everything going okay? Did anybody get hurt? Okay, we're done. Get back. Get me the footage. I'll get it to the editor. Get it scored. Get it out. Got a deadline. Moving on. You know, and then you're and then you know people like you and I are like, oh, but the science is so rich. The story is so. I mean, that's that's a British perspective, you know. Right. We're, in the, is, we're in the wrong continent here. Yeah, they just don't take the time to understand. That there, there is, I always say, there's always a soap opera, you know. If you just look long, long enough. There's always drama, you yeah. You can always say, oh, look what's happening, you know. But, you know, yeah, audi- you know, British audiences don't mind being shown their ignorance. Right. Like, they like a challenge. Like, oh, why is that? Oh, that's actually really cool. Honey, did you know? American audiences don't like to be shown their ignorance. They just want to be. They just want to try to predict who's going to slap who next. 
you know, or who's going to punch who, or who's going to steal what, you know, swamp well, we all loggers. Think we're the smartest guy in the room. Well, yeah, probably. And that's a very American yeah. attitude. We all, you know, we're always the smartest guy in the room, whether it's true yeah. or not. But oh, there's probably a lot of people here way more <laughs> brilliant than I am, but so, because they didn't go into filmmaking. They didn't go into filmmaking. <laughs> so, you know, to kind of wrap it up, you know, I was asked, it's kind of asked, you know, we talked about the birds of paradise, and it's kind of rattling in my head. You know, what bird is out there that you would just love to somehow find a way to film. Is there one out there you're like, oh, that'd be, that, that would make a really neat story? Oh, man. Um, God, I mean, there's so many different stories. Um, I mean, my head's spinning with, with little uh, things I've seen in the field that I think... You know, the, the one thing, I have a couple things that are like my arch nemesis. One of them is getting herons eating ground squirrels. Oh, yeah. Because I've done, I've done it once, but it wasn't satisfying footage, you know, and I always wanted to spend time out there. Because you know, they're hunting, and they're hunting amphibians, they're out in the, you know, they're, they're out getting toads. They're like, they're not just a water bird, you know, right. and, that, and I love that. Um, so it's a story of altered expectations, kind of. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of what you do is you show behavior that's, that, yeah, it, it defies your expectations, but it's it's novel, it's, um, yeah, I don't know, man, there's, you know, so I went to Panama back in, um, geez, when was this, 1999, uh, maybe, to a biological research station, and, um, this is where, and I, I was not a filmmaker at the time, and I had a really crappy digital camera that actually spun discs. It had little, like, oh, little CDs in it, and it would spin them and just burn the batteries down. But um, I was uh, studying uh, these golden collared mannequins, and I was trying to see if their periods of activity coincided with light on the forest floor. You know, and so as the sun moved and there were times of darkness, you know, or, or relative darkness and shade, were they less active? Um, so anyway, I, I spent time, I built this big banana leaf blind, I spent all this time in there slapping mosquitoes and watching, and I filmed um, these birds, you know, and uh, with this crappy little handheld camera, basically like, you know, precursor of a cell phone, just took a right. crappy, crappy image. It was like 300 pixels by 200-some pixels. Yeah, you know, a little yeah. movie about that big. Yeah. But I was filming these mannequins displaying to these females, and it was... Uh, that was my first time ever sitting in a blind and filming, quote-unquote filming, um, birds. And uh, I have that footage, you know, and it's, you know, whatever that is, um, going on 14 years old now. And uh, it's haunted me. That I, I, knowing now what I know, I wish I could go back and redo that. It's almost like I regret having that amazing experience in front of me and not documenting it well. I mean, I got data. I got numbers. I could show you sunlight patterns <laughs> for, as a percentage. You know, all that mannequin lacking behavior. Yeah, it was just so cool. And I had them all um, figured out. You know, like I'd spent days. You know, I was in that blind for oh, geez, I don't know, like ten hour shifts. You know, for multiple days. We started picking up little cues. Oh, so yeah, my butt was numb, but I knew I started dialing in on the behavior, and I couldn't. Man, I could film it like you would believe now, but. 
I don't know. I'll probably never get back there because there's so many other places I want to go and things I want to see. And yeah. Yeah. So Man. how do folks get in touch with you? And, you know, I know your social media activity, so how do folks Yeah, well, so we're on Facebook, you know, Conservation Media. You can just search it and we'll come up. Um, the three green leaves. Um, and, and I have a website uh, so people can see what I do. There's a tons of videos and photos there. Um, that's sort of just sort of a, a welcome to learn what it is I do sort of a deal. Um, then there's Vimeo, there's YouTube, there's Twitter. Um, always search for this conservation media. If you search for conservation media, we will be 18 out of the top 20 things. So. Oh, I have. Every once in a while, like every six months, I try to see where I'm ranking. Where you're at, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's working. I mean, it's either either I'm really good at what I do or nobody else is competing against me because nobody's that dumb. So. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and I think it's time we go grab a beer. Sounds good. Thanks, Red. Thank you. Yes.